Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit Malhotra, Life Mastery, and I'm excited to have Nick Desai, who's the founder of Rene, which is a transformative digital health assistant specifically designed for older and underserved Americans. Uh, 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 to coordinate, communicate, and connect all aspects of the healthcare. Nick was earlier the CEO of Heal, where he uh, expanded the company to 10 states, raising over $165 million in investment capital. Uh, Nick earned his bachelor's in electrical and computer engineering from UCLA, when, and he's done his MS in electrical engineering from UCLA. A big thanks to Amit guy from Tau Ventures for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Nick. Uh, it's great to be here, Rohit. Thank you uh, for having me. Excited to speak with you and, and your audience. Awesome. So, um, so you know, you you've had an interesting journey. You want you into uh, a second second startup. How did you get into into this crazy world of startups? Uh, this is actually my fifth venture funded startup. My sixth startup overall, and for me. Oh. Uh, it's in the blood. Uh, my father is an entrepreneur, uh, was an entrepreneur, he's retired now. Uh, my grandfather had his own business. Um, and so honestly, I was 16 years old before I knew that you could do something other than just start your own company. So it's all I've ever wanted to do. I, I relate. Uh, I enjoy leadership. I enjoy the challenge of creating something out of nothing. So after I finished graduate school and worked for about a year, I started my first company, and I, I'm here. I am thirty years later. Interesting, and you, you know, you you built uh, Heal and you raised uh, you know hundred sixty five million dollars. Uh, what what were some of your learnings from Heal, and why did you you know uh, sell the company? So, so look, the, the learnings from Heal were, I can't, I mean, I could talk for the whole hour about how much I learned from building that company. Right. So prior to Heal, I had obviously done three venture funded startups and I, so I knew a lot about the venture capital process and I knew a lot about business development and corporate clients. And that's really where my focus had been is B2B and, and all of those things. But with Heal, we had a product. It was a, it, Heal's a doctor house call. It's like Uber to get a doctor to come to your house, um, except it's covered by insurance. So it was a revolutionary concept. And it was the first product I had that had magnetic appeal to consumers and to investors, right? It was not something that I ever had to explain to anybody all I would say is it's an app for doctor house calls. It's covered by insurance. And people would say, yes, I'm in. And I remember we had very early on from our very before our founding, really, one of the investors we had the opportunity to meet is a world famous uh, singer, a musician uh, named Lionel Richie. Right. Okay. You've probably heard yeah. of him. And I, I remember sitting with him and I'm sitting at this hotel and I'm like, I can't believe I'm sitting with Lionel Richie. And he says, so what is this about? What's the idea? You know, why am I here? And I just said, it's Uber for Dr. House calls. And he said, I'm in literally that was the pitch. Right. And whether it was insurance companies, whether it was corporate clients, we had 75 corporate clients at Heal. So Hulu, Netflix, Fox, Activision, Blizzard, Google, uh, eBay, on and on and on. We had 25 insurance companies from Medicare to Humana to Aetna to United Healthcare. We had 300,000 patients. It was an intuitive concept. And so Heal, the challenge for me, as opposed to my previous startups, which was about driving growth and pushing and 
being unrelenting to get more one more person, convince one more person, convince one more person was actually the uh, was managing growth. Right. Mm -hmm. The single most important lesson was how do I grow effectively? How do I spend my money wisely? How do I appropriately attract patients? How do I make sure the unit economics work? How do I add people? Right. We grew from two, three, myself and my wife who founded the company to a group of five people to 50 people to a hundred employees in a period of two years. Right. That's a lot of hiring and the infrastructure for that. And the, and we launched uh, heal in numerous states. And so scaling a business and operationalizing something to work at a large scale was was really the most important takeaway I took from Heal. Uh, what, what I've always believed and what was true about Heal, I hope what's true about Renee, what's true about my companies before that with FitOrbit and and others is the power of an idea, right? That That a good idea requires incredible great execution, perseverance, persistence, and all those things. But fundamentally you have to have a good idea you have to have something interesting and heal was an you know an exploration of the power of an idea that was that went really to scale very very fast and and sustainably and it's still heal is just to be clear heal's now raised uh, when when i left we had raised 200 million dollars in investment capital for the company um and uh, the company is still around and doing very well and and will, we think, eventually be acquired. But when I dose to step down in March of last year, about six and a half years after running Heal, because the acquisition path um, was the most likely path. And a number of large companies were looking at it, including our largest investor, Humana, uh, and a, which is a huge healthcare company. And in that context, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a... Uh, employee at a large company. It's not my nature. So it was a good time to take a step back, transition to new management, uh, hand over the reins and, and to go from there. Interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the cost of rising for, for chronic conditions in the U.S., well, why do you think, you know, that is happening? And why is the, you know, the medical structure so, um, uh, so, uh, you know, why are the so many rising costs, uh, especially for the U.S. healthcare? Look, again, a topic I speak about, I, I do my own podcast, and I hope you don't mind the shameless plug. It's on Slice of Healthcare. It's called Nick's Notes. And, uh, and uh, uh, but, but. And I talk about this extensively, and again, I could talk for hours, but the U.S. healthcare system is an interesting quagmire, right? It's a $4 trillion healthcare system. To put that in perspective, the entire economy of India is $3 trillion, right? Yeah. So we spend more on healthcare in the U.S. than the entire economy of India, right? right. The entire economy of every country in the world except Japan and China frankly, I think is, is uh, those are the only two countries that have an economy greater than $4 trillion. The number one reason for the costs in the U.S. is bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. When the U.S. introduced insurance and private employer-funded insurance, right? So, the history of U.S. healthcare, not getting into the whole history, is it was a largely cash-based system. Then Medicare was created. Then a tax break was created for employers to offer healthcare to employees, and that was in the seventies. And 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 by the eighties and nineties, 
virtually all working people had, and, and certainly now all working people have uh, health care from in, health insurance from their employers. Health insurance, not Medicare, but private commercial health insurance is a fundamentally inefficient initiative. And the reason is because insurance as a model does not work for healthcare. Insurance is a business that works when a lot of people pay into a system that very few people will use and everyone's incentives are aligned. Okay. So let me give you an example. Fire insurance. Okay. Works. I don't want my house to burn down and the insurance company doesn't want my house to burn down. Life insurance works. I don't want to die. And my insurance company doesn't want me to die. But health insurance doesn't work because healthcare is something we should use. Healthcare is like education. The more we provide it, the more we create a foundation for prevention, right? Educated people commit less crimes, do more this, less drugs, all this stuff. Similarly, healthcare cannot be thought of as something that you should only use once you get really sick. It should be thought of as something you use to avoid getting really sick. A doctor-patient relationship, a therapist-patient relationship, a relationship with a nutritionist, the tools that help you give the ability to lead a healthier life. Yes, anyone can get cancer or a car accident, but short of those things, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, the main chronic disease in this country can be reduced in scope substantially by a more preventive approach to healthcare, such as the one they use in Japan. Japan has the highest life expectancy in the world. The average Japanese person lives five years longer than the average American, and they spend only 40% per capita of what we do on healthcare. So, because they have a prevention-oriented approach that starts from day one. So the fundamentally, the insurance model for healthcare is broken. And what that does is it creates an incentive for insurance companies to not pay for things, which means there's a fight between the doctor, the patient, and the insurance company as to who's going to pay. That creates a bureaucracy, and that's a trillion dollars of healthcare costs in the U.S. healthcare system, right? That $1 trillion alone should be gone. Right. It, the, oh. That if we went to a single payer system where the rates were mandated and the government paid, it would be uh, every single thing that everything was, you know, these things were covered for everybody. We would get rid of that bureaucracy and we could save a trillion dollars on healthcare. That now there are many, many other reasons that go beyond that and data points about how healthcare costs have risen without a rise in whatever. But I'll leave you with this data point on this. Between 1995, 1990 and 2015, and at 25-year period, the number of doctors practicing medicine in the United States on a per capita basis increased 0%. Same number of doctors to population ratio. Over the same period of time, the number of people working in healthcare bureaucracy increased 5,500%. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing instructions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan. Uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Crazy. Uh, uh, You know, uh, you have uh, a built heel as well as you're looking to build 
Rene, along with your partner, uh, you know, how, how do you, uh, how do you get to work with your partner in, in launching products and uh, how do you separate your personal and your know, professional life? So, so the, the, the answer to that question, um, Rohit is Renee and I are husband and wife, and we've been husband and wife for 14 years. We've started a company together eight years ago, uh, and now with Heal, and now this one, Renee's a physician, I'm an engineer and serial entrepreneur, right? My my wife is my has been I, I started but I started three companies before Renee and I had business partners in each one. The best business partner I've ever had is Renee, and there, because there are some fundamental things about a hus a good husband wife relationship that help a business. One is I trust her completely, and she trusts me. Yeah. The second is we have completely different skill sets. Renee is a clinic physician. She's clinically oriented. She has attention to detail. She's good at HR and operations and things like that. I'm an outward facing person. I raise the money. I get the deals. I think of strategy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, the that's that's point number one. The second point is that we're good at conflict resolution. I don't know if you're married, but if you are, you cannot be husband and wife successfully without learning how to resolve differences and conflicts, right? Oh. And and the conflicts and the stress and the issues we deal with are around marriage or our parents or health issues or our three children. We have three lovely children together. Those are way higher stakes issues than a company, right? A company is very important, but it's not more important than my children. Right. Mm -hmm. So once we've dealt with those issues, we know how to resolve conflict. Right. So and in terms of keeping our work and personal life separate, it, it happens naturally because we have three beautiful children. Right. We get home either. Sometimes we work in the same place. Sometimes we work in a different place, uh, to, you know, geographically. Sometimes she works from home or I work from the office or whatever the case may be. But the moment we walk in the house, there are three kids eager to play with us and who want our time and attention. And so it instantly, you know, pulls us away from work, but also we've actually become really good at it. Right. We talk about work during work hours. And when we're at home, we don't talk about work. Right. We talk about our family and she and I will spend an entire day working together leave here if, if the kids are with the grandparents or something and go out and have dinner and enjoy ourselves and not talk about work. We're, we're not only business partners and parents together, we're also best friends. Mm, got it. Super, super interesting. And, um, uh, you know, you, you have a high lot of people, uh, you know, how do you, how do you define high performance in, in business today? Uh, look, I, I, first of all, I think that definition of high performance has evolved and changed because the definition of employer and employee have evolved and changed. I've been an employer for 30 years and across five or six companies, and I've seen people of all shapes and sizes and ages and dem demog demographics and educational backgrounds. But in the last th two to three years, I've seen changes at a faster pace more significant changes than I've ever seen because the tide has shifted from the employee should be thrilled they have a job and the employer has the upper hand to the employer should is, should be thrilled the employee shows up to work and the employee has the upper hand, especially when there's low unemployment that, you know, and, and a lack of, you know, not enough, very highly qualified people, right? That, that exacerbates the problem. Now, the reality is that there are plenty of companies and uber wealthy people, super multi-billionaires in every country that 
how, you know, whether it's Mukesh Ambani and his billion dollar house, right. In, yeah. in a city that his house is two kilometers from the largest slum in the world, Dharavi, right. Cool. Maybe build a half a billion dollar house and help these people get out of the slums. Right. Or, Bezos or Musk and their crazy ideas to buy Twitter or send people to Mars instead of feeding people or planting trees, right? The, the, the uber wealthy have given entrepreneurs a bad name. Most of us are actually decent, hardworking people who care a lot about the people who work with us, right? right. And it doesn't look like that when Amazon warehouse employees are struggling without healthcare and Jeff Bezos has $250 billion, right? right. The, the optics of that and the reality of that are very bad. But the reality is there needs to be a balance, right? Employees, this is a business relationship and employees should be expected to work and deliver performance commensurate to the wages they earn. And employers should be respected to be honest, ethical people who don't take advantage of their employees and hoard all the proceeds and the winnings, but share it with their employees, right? Both, both this can only exist in a symbiotic balance, right? right. Um, so, why is that an answer to high-performing employees? Because today, I look at a high-performing employee as someone who I always feel like they're delivering reliably the value that I'm paying for, but ideally delivering more value so that I proactively feel the need to increase their compensation, to ag more aggressively reward them, to make them a bigger part of, of whatever it is I'm doing. And, and I think that that can operate that dynamic can exist at any level of employee, right? I have people who work at this company who have uh, degrees from Oxford and Cambridge, and I have people who work at this company that have no college education, right? And across that spectrum, it is possible to have someone who is willing to learn, to go above and beyond that shows curiosity and commitment. And showing that to your employer is not mean that your employer is taking advantage of you. It means that your employer, you are showing your employer that you want to be more and do more. And then your employer, it's up to your employer, it's up to people like me to reward you, to share, to let you share in the, the rewards of what you are helping create it. Carl, super interesting. And, um, you know, uh, it's a follow-up on, on performance. When do, you, when do you get to decide when to let go of someone uh, and how long do you, uh, do you give, you know, underperformers to, to, to see that, you know, they're performing well in the company or not? You, you know that this is a really, really tough question, right? There's a general saying in any startup that says hire slow and fire fast. Right. Um, and, and, and I generally do believe that, which is, you know, be very careful about your hiring decisions and, and hire people only that you're very sure about. And if you sense that someone's not going to work out, right. Make the hard decision earlier in the process. Right. right. Um, be, because, because you're not doing anyone any favors if you don't make the hiring decision early. Right. Um, it, but but the corollary to that point is that what you have to be able to recognize early on, and what I'm really proud of that I've done in my career, is recognize people who have limited skills or experience right now, but have incredible upside potential. There's a young lady who works for us at this company right now named Sarah, okay. right? Uh, and I won't say her last name, but she came here to do one specific job. 
it's it was uh handling patient phone calls and things like that and she has grown in less than six months to do business development to do marketing to do a number of different things that are allowing her to grow with the company in a really exciting way when i was at heal i had a young uh, man worked for us named vikash and he started as an intern while he was still at ucla and stayed with us through his computer science education after he finished his degree while he went to Cambridge for his master's came back full-time after and grew I have a young lady who worked for us named Heather who learned enough and always went the extra mile and today she started her own startup right Right. Um, so finding out that someone is not going to cut it or fundamentally does not have the commitment or the skill set or the abilities or the desire to deliver on even the most uh uh, basic workplace expectations is someone you should cut right away. But if you find someone, if I find someone, certainly my belief is if I find someone that has what I call high ceiling, which is if you push them, if you give them opportunity, if you give them training, if you support them with education, the tools they need, they can grow into a really high level contributor that's the best kind of person right is someone you grow with and they grow with you and 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 it's a great relationship for both sides could have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of beautiful lives increased the social media presence by 10x they managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called social pilot social pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, to- I totally agree on that. And uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about product uh, uh, yeah, product launches. And uh, especially, you know, when it comes to B2B enterprise companies, if they launch the first product, uh, how do, uh, what advice would you give to them on when, when should they release the second product? Look, you know, I, I think the answer to that question is is really dependent on the company, the space, the market segment, the revenue model, whether they're B2B, SaaS, this, that, whatever, right? But fundamentally, I think that the first focus should be to find the MVP that is a saleable product, whether it's B2B, D2C, whatever. This is a widget people are willing to buy. I always use this example famously. When the iPhone came out, There were already phones, millions of virtually every phone that was sold at the time, flip phones, Nokia phones, they had cameras in them. Most of those phones allowed picture messaging as in I could take a picture and send it to somebody as a message, right? The iPhone famously did not allow picture messaging when it first came out. It didn't. There was no picture message. There was no app store. There was, it was the internet and the browser. And this was the experience. It was this heavy, clunky device compared to what we're used to now. But it had a killer user interface, the touchscreen, a way people liked, and it had a front-facing camera so I could take pictures of myself, right? And that spurred a revolution where we see where Apple is today in the world, right? The world's most valuable company. So so the world's most valuable, sorry, not I think Aramco is more valuable, but the world's most valuable tech company uh, by far. Right. That. So do not I don't think the rush is to offer features or product iterations. It's to build something that sells to sell it 
and then to build what, what the customers who are buying it want so you can both serve your customers better, your existing customers, and go get more customers. So I don't think the question is when to launch a next product. I think the question is, have you launched a product that serves patients well? And if so, um, if so, uh, not patients, sorry, customers. In our case, that's patients, but yeah. customers well. And if so, um, is that product doing well in the marketplace? And if so, what is the correct next step? Mm, got it, got it. And especially for founders, you know, um, who have, uh, who, who launch a product and uh, what advice would you give to them on when to stop working on, on, on a product uh, if it is uh, not at the, at the right product market fit? And, uh, and how do you know when it is, it is not working? Uh, yeah, so the answer to that question is, Look, I, 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 I'm always of the opinion of get it out there as right. quickly as possible. Don't overrepresent what it does. Don't lie about what it does, but get it out there, right? Yeah. The fastest you can get a product in the hands of real people. The, 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 I had an investor at Spark Capital in my company at Fit Orbit that always used to say, the best product is the one that most people use or the mm -hmm. one that makes the most money. Right. Cool. Uh, and I, again, I always use this example. One of the most indispensable tools in my work life is LinkedIn. Okay. Uh -huh. It's how I keep track of contacts, this, that. It's my living address book of where I'm knowing where and I look up anyone. I, I don't even get resumes anymore. I just say, ask me for their LinkedIn profile. Right. right. Um, and I see where people work and where they went to school and decide if I want to interview them and meet new people, whatever, all this stuff. LinkedIn is a horrible user experience. Right. Okay. It's, you know, and there are tools that are way cooler and easier to use, but they don't have any real sustainable value. So people don't use them. Right. So I, and, and by the way, LinkedIn's the only social network that has ever figured out how to get its users to pay money because it has real value. People find jobs on LinkedIn, people find employees on LinkedIn. So it has value. Right. Okay. So I think that. You know, there's always a context of make it better, over-engineer, perfect, perfect. There's no such thing as perfect because what you think is you could spend 10 years building a product and the first person who uses it is going to think of something you didn't, right? Right. Got it. And, uh, and you know, uh, you've been an uh, Indian immigrant uh, and you have uh, worked uh, worked in in the U.S. Uh, and, and there's some really uh, high-profile uh, entrepreneurs as well as uh, CEOs of big companies or in uh, from Indian origin. Um, what are some of the advantages or disadvantages of, of being an uh, Indian in, in the Indian tech? Uh, sorry, in the US tech ecosystem. Look, I, I think you know. I I think that the the generation of Indians that came here before me, right. my parents, my in laws, that did did Indian people in America an incredible and Indian people in the world an incredible favor, right? Yeah. When 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 Narendra Modi gave a speech at the at a joint session of Congress to the to the senators a, a few years back when when Trump was president. Yeah. He, he talked about Indians are scientists and doctors and CEOs here. And he, he made this joke, right? That, and we've even given you a few spelling bee champions, right? If you know the U S spelling bee winners are always Indian kids and, and whatever. Right. So for two, for th three decades now, there's a general perception that if I'm talking to an Indian person in America, they're a smart person. They're a doctor, lawyer, and engineer, right? There's comedians who make fun of this stereotype now, but it's generally true. And generally they're smart, hardworking people. They, own 50% of the motels in the country and they own the, the right 
they're business owners. They're they're hardworking. They're smart. They're decent. They show up. They're reliable. They don't complain. And but then over the last two decades, what's happened in venture capital and startups and in the tech world is the CEO of Google, Microsoft, IBM, Twitter, Adobe, venture partners at every every. I mean, not just Amit that Tao, who's fantastic, but Tao's a smaller fund in the, at Kleiner Perkins, at Sequoia, at uh, at Andreessen Horowitz. At I, I could go on and on. Name a VC, and there are prominent Indian partners. So there's an entire ecosystem. And so the advantage is first being given benefit of the doubt that you are organically a smart person by virtue of doing it. Second, there are tons of other CEOs, right? And so if you're building a health tech company and you don't know anything about health tech and you're starting for the first time, I, I can't tell you how many reach Indians have reached out to me saying, hey, I'm a fellow Indian. I'm trying to start. And I always find time to help them. Right. Wow. Not that I don't help people who aren't Indian, but I, I will. You know, it's hey, it's a fellow Indian brother or sister wow. that, that I want to be helpful to or write to Vijay Kedar at Tomorrow Health or Manav. I forget his last name at at uh, Memora Health or uh, Sid Vishwanath uh, at. Um, is it Sid? I can't remember his name. Uh at uh, at True Pill or the the Hemantinage or General, there are so many people that you can write to that you might just get an email opened where you wouldn't before. So I think that the the context of being an Indian or Indo American entrepreneur in the United States right now is all upside. All it's just I, I can't think of a better you know position to be in uh, because you have an ecosystem of entrepreneurs of venture capitalists, of big tech CEOs, of people now in at the FDA and at the FCC and at in in various positions of hell, the vice president of the United States is half Indian, right? So yeah. you you have all of those all of those those positions, right? And again, it's not to say I'm, I'm I, let me be clear. Most of the I have a lot of VCs invested in in Renee, and I had a lot invested in Heal, and an overwhelming majority of them were not Indian people, right? But they thought I was smart because you know, in part because I was an Indian person, smart and hardworking and committed and whatever, all that stuff, right? right. Um, but but if you are starting out for the first time, having someone who's from the same place in the world or speaks the same language, especially if you have an accent or you're new to the country or whatever the case may be, can be incredibly helpful. And all you need is that one person that pushes just a little bit for you that can be so invaluable in 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 getting started, right? So I, I think that that ecosystem, that network, that reputational power is is phenomenally, phenomenally valuable. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think uh, Indian Americans uh, who who've been in in the, in the US have done done a great job. And, um, and Nick, you you on your six uh, six startup, uh, you raised um, you know a lot of venture capital. What makes you so driven? What makes you keep going on and building building new companies? Look, you know, I always say that the being driven is is two things, right? Three things. First is the immigrant work ethic, right? You come. In, the second is that, you know, when I was a kid in India, all the those advantages notwithstanding, when I was a kid in here in the U.S., where my family's Jain, and I used to be veg strict vegetarian, and 
today everyone's a vegetarian and every celebrity is vegan or vegetarian and especially here in california everyone just if you eat something it's weird not if you don't yeah, gluten-free vegetarian vegan this that no dairy oh but back then it wasn't like that and i was the only vegetarian kid in my elementary school i was the only indian kid in my elementary school right yeah. so i got picked on and i got bullied and made fun of and they call it bullying now it was called picked on then or just being made fun of and even the teachers sometimes got in on it and so you, you become tough and you get a chip on your shoulder and you want to prove something to the world and you want to prove that you're, I'm better than. And, and I think another part of it is, is, is the, you know, showing my parents and, and the challenge I give my kids, which is if you are born of opportunity, if you are born into an environment, and this goes for anybody in or otherwise of privilege, my parents had food, they had money, they had education, they could send me to school, they could, you know, get me a car, all this stuff. It's an obligation to do something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And And the last is what I consider really the most important reason, which is just there are 1.4 billion people in India, right? Yeah. And there are 7 billion, 8 billion people on the planet. An overwhelming majority of them will never even get the chance to think about what they want to do because they are too busy doing what they have to do, right? Yeah. To pay the bills, to put food on the table, to stay alive. They're, they're fighting that fight in the majority of the world. And so if you're one of those few people that gets to not only think about what you want to do, but have the education to do it, have the opportunity to do it, have the mental faculties and the intellectual gifts to do it. If you don't go change the world, you're just, you're honestly taking all those blessings and, and, and crapping all over them. Right. I, I just, I honestly don't see how someone can have gifts of opportunity and intellect and not go want to do something incredibly special. And my change, you know, I'm 52 years old and I have kids now and my challenge to my kids and my challenge to, uh, to my, uh, to all the younger Indian generation and Indian, Indian Americans is, you know, build on the reputation we, we built for you and our parents built for us, right? You know, if Indian people aren't on the Supreme Court and don't become president and don't continue to say CEOs and, you know, do well, I, I think it would be a damn shame, right? Yeah. And and you can't take it for granted. You have to work with the, with the rigor uh, and the intensity that comes of being born of opportunity, in my opinion. So, you know, and I like it. And and the, the last reason I, I should say is, is why I do it every day and why I still do it, you know, because we're financially blessed at this point is because I enjoy it, right? Like, I can't think of what I what else I would do that I enjoy this much, right? I, I get up in the morning and I... I, I've never taken a paycheck since I was 23 years old. I haven't taken a paycheck that I didn't sign for myself. That's that's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah, yeah, so, so, super interesting and very inspiring. And uh, I, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? My favorite business book is probably uh, God. There's so many good ones. Uh, but I, one I really like is uh, called The New New Thing, mm. uh, which I think is by Jim Clark, if I remember correctly, right? The New New Thing uh, is a book, uh, Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley. It's by Michael Lewis, The New New okay. Thing. Okay, Michael. Oh, okay, got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started 
uh, building Rene or or he? What is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Well, Rene is a relatively new company, right? So it's hard to go that much back in time. But I would say in Heal, the one thing I would have done differently is uh, focus on growth within one market more than growth by launching in new markets because the operation became so much more complicated because we were in 11 states where we could have built the same size business just in California or just even in Southern California. And that would have been a much more successful strategy, I think, in, in retrospect. Got it. And, and do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Uh, I honestly think Zoom and LinkedIn, which I mentioned, right? Yeah. Those are the the two things, I mean, Gmail's fine, but there are other email apps and Slack. I don't really get that Slack is just text messaging on my computer, right? It's simple. Um, to me, it's not indispensable. People tend to love it. But to me, it's Zoom, uh, LinkedIn and Zoom, right? This is how I do my work. Is Yeah, yeah. I absolutely love these products. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, Nick, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Rin? Uh, if people want to visit more about Renee, they can just go to the website, Renee.com, R-E-N-E-E.com. If they want to connect with me, I'm Nick at Renee.com, Nick at R-E-N-E-E.com. It's super simple. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.